from St. Paul's epistle to the Corinthians. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning, friends. I've got a complaint. This cold weather is not in my contract. Yeah, just joking. I don't have a contract. You know, it surprises a lot of people that don't know me well when they find out and they discover, um, and if you spend some time here, you'll know this already, uh, that I wasn't always a Christian. In fact, as a young man, uh, I didn't believe in any of this really at all. I certainly wasn't a choir boy. Um, I really wrestled with Christianity for lots of different reasons, but I'll share with you uh, the main one, because when I was a younger man, say high, you know, middle school and then certainly in high school, I thought Christianity was, well, stupid. I'll be honest with you. In, in my mind, back then, and I was wrong, but in my mind, I thought of Christians as people like uh, that guy Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. Do you know him? What is that noise? Ned, San Ned Flanders is this guy from The Simpsons. He's the guy who's sort of the, the characterization of a Christian, and the worst thing that Ned Flanders ever says is, oh, fiddly D. I'm not sure about you, but I've never said that in my entire life. And so I looked at Christianity as sort of this uh, naive, wishful thinking, pie in the sky, you know, just kind of useless worldview. When I heard that, that when I, and one of the reasons primarily was this idea we're going to dial on today, is this idea of God as love. That God was a God of love, and that God loved me. And that sounded so hopelessly naive and st stupid, I'll be honest. And, then, and the reason is pretty obvious, and if you think about it, you'll see why I'm saying this. I was 18 years old. My parents divorced. No one saw it coming, including my dad or any of the children. My parents divorced. It was pretty rough. I wound up having to carry the ball for my two siblings for about two years and after that, um, from college, actually. And I really struggled with, well, if God is a God of loves me, then why does this happen? Right? And everyone's got something. You've all got something. Everyone's got something going on in their life. And think about it like this. You're telling me that you look around at the suffering of the world, you know, you see... Russia's going to invade Ukraine again. Are you, are you kidding about this? This is ridiculous. It's 1986 again. But I mean, even, even closer to home, you know, people, people die in car wrecks, or you've got friends that are, are sick or dying, or, you know, you lose your job, or, you know, your stock account is going, whatever it is, man, fill in the blank, everyone's got something going on. Some things more serious than others, to be sure. But you mean to tell me in the face of all this suffering and wrong that God loves me? Yeah, spare me. That's what I thought. And I'll be honest with you, friends, this fiddly-D Christianity turned me off for a long time, and here's the reason why. And, 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 if you, and if you don't feel this way, a lot of your friends do. So even if this is maybe not even a sermon for you necessarily, I guarantee you there are people around you that feel the way that I felt and that will and will see what I'm driving at today. Because I, I really think it comes down to, the main thing is this. People misunderstand this idea of love. L-O-V-E, love. I think it is the most misunderstood word in the Christian vocabulary. And so today we're going to do a deep dive on one word, love. It's going to surprise you. Two points from St. Paul's famous epistle about love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. What is love? What is this stuff? What is it 
And what does it look like? So what is love and what does it look like? So what is love? Define your term, Rodriguez. Well, you know, I found, I found a, I Googled it. You know, what did we do before Google? I don't know. But we, I Googled it, and this guy, Victor, Victor Hugh, said that, quote, life is the flower for which love is the honey. Life is the flower for which love is the honey. That is something I have never said in my entire life. Nor would I ever. In fact, I'll tell you a funny story. I thought I'd said this before. Apparently, I didn't. When Kathy and I were first dating, we were sitting on, we were uh, sitting there watching The Wizard of Oz, which I could have cared less about, but she loved the movie. So we watched The Wizard of Oz, and we're kind of watching along. And I said to her, I said, so, I said, so, Kath, um, which of the characters in the story would I be? She, of course, would be Dorothy, right? And uh, I said, who do you think I'd be? And I'm thinking, you know, the lion, of course. Did I tell you this story? The lion, strong, brave, courageous. I said, I'd be the lion, right? She says, no, you wouldn't be the lion. I said, the, what? Who would I be? And she said, you'd be the tin man. And I said, why? She said, you have no heart. <laughs> it's really funny. I was a lot different guy back then. She, my, my wife and my children have certainly made me a lot softer and a lot more compassionate. But, but here's the thing. She's actually onto something because in my mind, this idea of throwing around emotions is manipulative. And, just, and for a lot of people, this idea of love is a feeling. It's fleeting. It's, it's the, what does he say? The flower for which love is the honey. Come on, man. What does that mean? Well, here's the problem. And, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Here's the problem that, you know, the New Testament is written in Greek. This book here that we read from is a, an English translation of the original text, right? So you, you do lose something when you go from Greek into English or Greek into anything. There are four words translated L-O-V-E in the New Testament, all four of them. There's four, four different words. One is philios, like Philadelphia, and it means uh, brotherly, like friendship, but it gets translated L-O-V-E, love. There's eros, this is the one we think of, eros, erotic love. You know what that is. That gets translated L-O-V-E, love. There's a third one, which is pretty rare in the New Testament. It's storge. We never use this one in English, but it's actually pretty cool. Storge is the instinctual love of a parent for a child. It gets translated L-O-V-E, love. And then the fourth one, this is the one that we're going to talk about today, is the word agape. And agape is a, is a word translated into love. It's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians. Love is patient and kind and all that. Agape is not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's not the flower for which life is the honey. Agape love is a verb. Agape, Christian love, friends, is a decision. It is a be behavior. Christian love is a verb. You see, they have these little bracelets you could buy. It said, love is a verb. That's true. It's not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's not Valentine's Day and all that stuff. The point I want you to see here, and I'm going to show you why this is important in a minute, that Christian love is, listen, an act of the will. Christian love is a decision that means, listen, you put the needs of someone else ahead of your own. Christian love is, is behavior, decision, that puts the need of someone else ahead of your own. Friends, Christian love is not an emotion. It's a verb. 
And with that in mind, let's, let's do a little quick survey of this idea of love in the New Testament, right? Give you one example. I'll give you just two. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, listen really closely. You'll see my point here. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, quote, And the life that I live, I, Paul, live for the Son of God who loved me, agape, and gave himself for me, a verb. You see it? That God loved me, agape, it's the word agape, and he gave himself for me. Or, you know, the football, Super Bowl is what, next weekend, right? I'm going home and watching football today. It's too cold to clean the garage. Sorry, Kath. I'm watching football, and you will see, I guarantee, some dude or some woman holding up a sign, John 3.16. You know this, right? Listen to what it says in the context of this, what I'm saying. God so loved the world, agape, it's that word again in Greek, that he gave a verb. See my point? Yes? That this Christian idea of love, God so loved the world, that God loved us, you and me, that he gave his son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. See, friends, here's the thing I want you to see. Love in the New Testament, biblical love, whether it's God's love from him to you or from us to someone else, is a verb. And it means it does not, and here's the important point that I want you to, this is supremely pastoral. It doesn't matter how you feel about someone. It's what you do for them. I'll say it again. Christian love is not about how you feel for someone, feel about someone. It's what you do for them. Agape love means putting the needs of someone else ahead of your own. It is love that acts. I will tell you, I'll tell you, frankly, when I discovered this in a sermon that love was a verb, it changed my whole concept of Christianity because Christianity is not just some social justice movement. Christianity is not just wishful thinking and naively, uh, you know, you know, refrigerator magnet poetry and wishful thinking and butterflies and puppy dogs. Christianity isn't wishful thinking about ignoring the suffering of the world. No, on the contrary. Christianity is all about directly acknowledging the suffering of the world and doing something about it. And in fact, if you look at, if you don't believe me, think of, I'll give you just a few, but there's lots of examples of this. The great social movements of the past couple of hundred years, and I'm just very high level, I've only got four. The undoing of the slave trade. Guess who, guess who started that? Christians. An Anglican, actually. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That dude that wrote that was a slave trader who became a priest and a Christian and ended the slave trade. You know why? Because God loved him. Segregation. Who ended that one? Who ended segregation? Christians. The ending of child labor laws or the enactment of child labor laws. Who was behind that? Christians. Women's voting. Who was behind that? Christians. You know why? Here's why. Because for the Christian, love is a verb. It is what you do. And once you get the, that idea in your mind, it's such an important... I mean, think about this, friends, because this has tremendous... Everything will make more sense to you if, you if you get that idea. Once you understand that, things that Jesus says make a lot more sense. I'll give you an example. One of the things which turned me off from Christianity is I thought it was just like these trite sayings. For example... For example Jesus says, love your enemies. We've all heard that before. Maybe you've got it on, maybe it's one of your life verses. 
We hear that, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, we hear that and we just, we just ignore it. Doesn't make any sense. It sounds nice, right? Campfire schmaltz. <laughs> love your enemies. But it sounds to me anyway, and to a lot of, certainly to people that are not Christians, it sounds just hopelessly naive. <laughs> because if you think about it, if, if you think of love as an emotion, then Jesus' commandment to love your enemies is utter nonsense. And it's completely foolish. I mean, think about it like this. Enemies, and we've all got them. Don't pretend you don't. Everyone's got people that you don't like and don't like to spend time with and has wronged you. Enemies are, by definition, people that we don't like. An enemy is someone that we avoid or we fear because we don't like them, you see? So if love is an emotion, it is impossible, by definition, to love your enemies. But, here's the hook. If love is a verb, you see, now we're getting somewhere. If love is a verb, then you can, in fact, do something kind for someone that you don't like. If love is a verb, then you can, in fact, act in a way for someone else who is your enemy that puts their needs ahead of your own. Jesus isn't, isn't telling you to like your enemy. That would be the word philios, love. That's not what it says. He says, you will agape, love your enemies. You'll be kind to them. You will do for them. Because for the Christian, friends, love is a verb. And that you can do. That you can do whether you like that person or not. Yeah, it's easier to love someone. It's easier, easier to agape someone who is also your friend, philios, love. That's easy. It is, it is easy to agape love your wife or your significant other when you have eros love for them. Sure, it's a lot easier, but, but, it doesn't, but there's more to it. We are called to love agape people whether we like them or not, you see. The point I want you to see in all this, and I'm going to show you why in a minute, why this is so important, that Christian love, friends, is an act of the will, a behavior, what you do. And then, so then what does this, why do we do it? What does this love look like? This is my second point, and I'm going to show you something. Let's look at Paul's again, list again. Look at it again. You've, you've heard this at weddings probably a hundred times, right? Paul says, uh, he lists out, what, are, you know, what does love look like? He says, patience verb. <laughs> Kindness. Hey, a verb. Rejoices in truth. That's a verb. Trusts. That's a verb. Hopes. That's a verb. Perseveres. That's a verb. All verbs. You know, it's funny because philosophers, if you look at the history of Western thought, philosophers have always wondered, how do you make people more, more virtuous? How do you make people more patient and joyful and truthful and kind and faithful how do we do it? In fact, even right now, Father Gritter and I are talking about this this morning, our own culture is looking for the thing that holds us together. What is it exactly? Is it inclusivity? Is it, and I'm not trying to pick on anything in particular, I'm just saying our culture is trying to figure out what it is that under, is underneath all the virtue. Is it diversity? Is it inclusivity? Is it, what is it? What is the thing underneath? Or is it just turtles all the way down? There's no secret, friends, for the Christian. The root of all of it is love. Putting the needs of someone else ahead of yourself. And all of those virtues that Paul lists out, they flow from a, a heart which loves others, listen, as Christ has loved you. 
You know, patience becomes a lot easier when you can put yourself in another person's shoes. Forgiveness becomes a lot easier when you can remember that you also need to be forgiven and have been by Jesus. If we stop and see the world from another person's perspective, and I'm not saying this is a moralistic idea, but I want to challenge you. If you stop and see the world from another person's perspective, you can, in fact, become more kind and joyful and faithful and hopeful. So I'm going to challenge you this morning with something before I move into a little more uh, theological point. I want to challenge you with something right now. I want you to think of someone right now that you struggle to be around. Maybe it's a student that you know or someone you work with or a colleague or whatever. I don't care who it is. One of your kids, your spouse, maybe your boss. I want you to think of someone that really you wrestle with. You have a hard time. Maybe it's not an enemy, but someone that you just don't really like all that much. I want you to think of that person, and I want you to make a decision to love them, to put their needs ahead of yourself. And there's a re- and I'm not just saying this as sort of a, a Stoic exercise, right? The Stoics were the Greeks that were trying to rise above all suffering, right? Kind of like Buddhism does, or uh, t- and today. I'm not saying this. I'm not challenging you to love your enemies or those that are ch- challenging to you as some sort of Stoic exercise. I am saying that I want you to do that because Jesus has done that for you, you see. The reason that we are called to put the needs of others ahead of our own is because Jesus did that for you first. Jesus came to earth. He took on human flesh. He walked in your shoes. Hebrews says, this is astounding to me, he was tempted in every way as you are but did not sin. He walked in your shoes. He died in your place on the cross to pay for your sins and mine, to save you. He literally put your needs out of his own. In a word, he loved you. Agape, it's the same word. 1 John 4.11 says this very thing. Beloved, that's, uh, it's a word for Christians. Beloved, since God loved us, agape, so much, we also ought to love one another. Do you see my point? That it's not just an exercise in moralism. Oh no, it's an exercise in I have been loved because Christ died for me and put my needs first, therefore I will do it for another. To draw them to him. Even when you were Christ's enemy, before you were saved, before I was saved, Jesus died for you. He put your needs ahead of his own. And when you see life through that lens, that we are to love others because Christ loved us first, man, that changes everything. Let me challenge you this week, friends, to love someone that maybe you don't like that much. Let me challenge you this week to love someone who maybe doesn't love you back. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you, to give you the patience and the kindness to see the situation from another person's perspective, just like Jesus saw it in yours and in mine. Let me challenge you to love someone else. Put their needs ahead of your own because Jesus did it for you. Shall we pray? Father, teach us, Lord, to love not as mere sentiment or wishful thinking, but as an action. Help us to live as Christians who love with a verb. 
Let, our, let your love flow through us to those around us. Let us be examples of your love to us, to those around us who do not know you, that we might draw them to you. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook. Thank you.